Hello and welcome to the PharmaForum podcast. My guest today is Dr. Alvaro Pascual Leone, one of the world's top neurologists. He's a neurology professor at Harvard Medical School, the medical director of the Deanna and Sydney Wolk Center for Memory Health, senior scientist at Hebrew Senior Life, and chief medical officer of Linus Health. And he's here today to talk to us about Alzheimer's and the many uh, interesting recent development in Alzheimer's treatment. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pascual Leone. Thank you. Nice to to be on the show and thank you for having me. So the big news recently is is about the uh, full final approval for Lakembi. But I thought maybe it would be good. You know, some of our listeners probably know as much as you do about uh, all the different mechanisms and, and the history here around these Alzheimer's drugs. But some of them might be in other spaces and it might be a little... Um, a little confused with all the news that's been coming out and all the different kind of uh, drugs in this space. So I thought it might be nice to start with a little overview of what's happening right now. You know, take us through Lakembi, Dunanimab, maybe touch on Adahelm. Um, you know, what are these drugs? Why are they so revolutionary? And what's been sort of the journey over the last couple of years that's gotten us to where we are? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great question. So it's a very exciting time in Alzheimer's disease, um, if one dare even say so. But, but the, you know, the, the fact is that this is uh, the number one uh, disease in terms of a cause of fear and anxiety in, in all of us, in humans to date, for good reasons. It threatens to take away who we are. And with that, there's been many, many decades of huge investment in efforts in academia, in pharmaceutical industries, to try to find treatments for this very complex disorder. For the first time, we now have not just one, but a number of drugs that modifying a given component of the pathology of this disease, changing the amount of amyloid deposition, they now translate into a clinically measurable effect where the disease disability progresses less than it otherwise would. So what is exciting about Lequembi, Lecanumab, and has also now been shown to be the case for Donanemab, which are the two latest of this type of medications that are monoclonal antibodies against amyloid, is that they don't just reduce the amount of amyloid in the brain. That's what they're intended to do, and they do accomplish that. But I think more importantly, that actually translates into the degree of disability over time in the participants that get the real medication progressing slower than otherwise it would have. And prior to this, we were never able to slow the progression of Alzheimer's, right? The, the drugs that were available were, were mostly about quality of life and, and uh, sort of or, or what, what was the standard of care before? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so prior to this, what we had were medications, that still, we still have them, which we hope will improve memory, improve functioning, improve the symptoms by a certain degree. On, on average, when, when the medications are well tolerated and successful, people can expect to go back to the level of difficulties that they had about a year prior but it doesn't really meaningfully change the progression of the disease. There is a little bit of an effect over a long time when you're on these medications, the progression being small, 
smaller than would otherwise be, but it's a small effect. This, for the first time, we now have um, uh, drugs that specifically are what we call disease-modifying drugs. They specifically change the progression of the disease, even though they don't actually improve how you're doing. It's not like, like you get better of the symptoms. It's that your symptoms don't progress as much. It's a very different target. Um, it is indeed the first time we have such medications, but perhaps it'd be worthwhile to point out uh, already that, that this is not the only way we can influence the progression of the disease. There is a whole host of lifestyle factors that we have come to identify that are important not to forget because those also can decrease the progression of the disease or reduce the rate of progression. Things like physical activity and cognitive activity and good sleep and appropriate diet. But, but in terms of pharmacological agents, for the first time, we now have some that, that can modify the disease. And part of the reason for that is because we have a better understanding than we've ever had before of, of how the disease works, right? Of what happens in the Alzheimer's brain. Tell me a little bit about that and, and you know, how that's changed in the last few years. Yeah, thank you, Jonah. So, um, you know, one of the very influential theories as to how and why Alzheimer's disease comes to be and why it translates into disability and cognitive problems has been labeled the amyloid hypothesis. And the notion is that this um, chemical, this protein that is accumulated in the brain of uh, patients with Alzheimer's disease, that that protein is the trigger of a cascade of, of problems that ultimately result in dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. That hypothesis is very debated. And I personally don't think that the success of lecanumab or denanumab necessarily proves um, that hypothesis or disproves it for that matter. I think that it adds some insights, but, but I think what we have come to realize is that the pathogenesis of the disease is very complex and that amyloid and the amyloid cascade plays a role, but it's not the only element. There is a lot of other factors, including other proteins, for example, tau protein, but, but also um, inflammation in the brain, uh, changes in excitability of the neurons. So we've come to identify a number of different factors and probably ultimately may develop combination therapeutics uh, to target this complex pathology. So uh, you're absolutely right. We've come to learn a lot more. We've come to improve on the way to target different elements. We also have now the capability and, and the studies ongoing that target multiple of these factors and, and promise to deliver us with, with more effective treatments. Now, this hasn't been a totally uh, smooth road to get here. Um, the Lequembi is sort of the second effort by Biogen and, and ISI, and, and the first one had a lot of, a lot of issues. Um, so, you know, we don't have to get too far deep in that. But what, what happened with, with Adahelm and, and um, what's sort of different with now? Yeah, so, so um, as I was mentioning, this amyloid uh, hypothesis has been there for a long time. It's been very influential. It's helped advance many uh, aspects. 
is very debated, among other reasons, debated because attempts to make medications that clean up the amyloid have been successful for a number of years in achieving that cleanup of the amyloid, but that hasn't translated in any clinical benefit. Aduhelm was one example of that, a particularly a, a prominent one, because the effect at a population level with a carefully done randomized clinical trial with appropriate control showed a very clear reduction in the amount of amyloid deposition, but really did not show any measurable clinical difference on cognition at the time or on progress of the disease over time. And so that led to a debate as to whether approval of a medication that has an effect on the brain or on the pathology, but doesn't really impact the patient's well-being and function, whether that should even be um, the metric we use. It's a, it was a bit of a departure for the Food and Drug Administration to approve the medication on the basis of its mechanism of action with the hope that that ultimately can translate into a clinical benefit without having shown it. What is different now to your, to your question, Jonah, is that lecanemab not only had the effect on the amyloid that was expected, but actually in the study was shown to have a clinically measurable effect on the disease progression. So the debate then becomes how meaningful is that change rather than whether there's going to be a change. And that, that is exciting. And as I say, it's an important milestone for the, for the Alzheimer's disease field. Now, this other drug is sort of nipping in the heels of, uh, of lecanemab is, is denanemab, and that's from Eli Lilly, right? Correct. And so where, how far along is, is that drug? And are there any key differences between the two or uh, besides the, the brand name on the, on the bottle? Well, so, so both of these medications are amyloid-targeting uh, monoclonal antibodies. So in other words, both of them aim to clean up the amyloid deposition, reduce that amyloid in the brain. Exactly how they go about doing that, what aspects of the amyloid they target is slightly different. At a practical level, what it means is that both of them need to be given as infusions, but donanemab can be given once a month, whereas lecanemab, at least for now, requires every two weeks an infusion. Both companies are exploring ways to make the drug reach the brain in, in different ways. Uh, so not by infusion, but maybe intranasally or other, other uh, ways of, of delivery. So there are some differences in the specific target in the brain, in the amyloid, and in the way it's, up, it's applied. But donanemab has completed its uh, randomized clinical trial, um, phase three trial, well-powered. Uh, it's been published in, in a peer review publication in JAMA. And, um, and the expectation is that, that the FDA will similarly grant approval as it has to lecanemab. If you look at the results, what is interesting about the donanemab trial is that they actually stratified patients by the amount of tau that they had in the brain. Think about it as looking at patients depending on how advanced is the disease and seeing who derives the benefit. And so they showed, I think rather elegantly, that the effect is greatest, really significant, 
for patients who have mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia, and that in more advanced stages of the disease, the benefit is really minimal. Uh, so a little bit clearer picture uh, of, of who to offer the medication to, and in the right individuals, the benefit was arguably greater than it had been in the Lequembi case where, again, that stratification was not, not done. So it may be a similar effect if, if you identify the same subjects. Similarly to Lequembi, there are risks to donanemab, um, very similar um, risk of inflammation in the brain, something called amyloid-related inflammatory or imaging um, abnormalities, aria, which can cause bleeds in the brain, can, can be so severe in some instances that it can cause the demise of the death of the patient. And that has happened in three instances in the donanemab study, and in fact, in three patients who had received lecanemab. So very similar risk-benefit profile with slight differences between, between the two. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what you said about it being more effective earlier on, because that points to a, a general difficulty with these neurodegenerative diseases that uh, a lot of people don't catch them early on. Uh, we don't have a, a clear biomarker. We don't have a screening test. How, I mean, what needs to happen there in, in order for these drugs to really have the optimal effectiveness? I think this is a, a, a huge issue, a very important one uh, in my mind. Uh, I, I have uh, talked before and think before of, of these medications as catalysts for change. What I mean with that is that if I think that we will keep getting better medications with greater efficacy uh, along the lines of, of lecanemab and donanemab, but, but hopefully the two of them, lecanemab to begin with, will help us change the way we approach dementia and Alzheimer's disease so that in a more proactive way, people are uh, getting a checkup, as it were, and, and, uh, and are identified ideally before they ever become um, clinically manifest uh, so that we can, we can plan appropriately, empower people to make decisions uh, early on in the course of the disease. So the, that requires early diagnosis. And to your point, I, I think importantly, it, it is helpful to have blood tests or, or other biomarkers that can identify the type of abnormalities that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. It, I think that's necessary, but I don't believe that is sufficient. And the reason why I'm saying this is because some people with Alzheimer's disease, about one in five, will have the disease but never develop dementia or some people will develop mild cognitive impairment and never progress. And so, so my argument is we want to go beyond detecting whether you have Alzheimer's disease and, and identifying whether you're developing some symptoms, some problems. Because if you do, then you harbor the risk of those getting worse. And that's the time, I think, to intervene. Whereas if you have signs of having Alzheimer's but no symptoms, then you may never develop them potentially, and you wouldn't want to be exposed to a medication that may bring with it some risks and where we have no real evidence that it will change anything in your disease because we don't have the data. So I think the ideal screening uh, that, that you're calling for, and I think is super important, 
is a combination of a behavioral cognitive assessment and the appropriate biomarker assay. And that I think can be done particularly leveraging technologies. So digital cognitive assessment allowed to, to empower primary care physicians at the point of care to check any one of us after a certain age and see whether we are at risk if, because we have signs of, of cognitive impairment very early before we become aware of them, before it becomes too late, frankly, to intervene. What about genetic risk profile screening, et cetera? I know that Alzheimer's runs in families to some extent. I mean, is, is that something that can be leveraged too? It's a great question. So, so there are some form of traditionally um, identified as genetic uh, diseases where you have a gene and that gives you a certain risk. Uh, in this case, it's sort of autosomal dominant uh, disease, but that's about only 4% of the cases of Alzheimer's disease in particularly young individuals from a particular part of the world. So for most instances, the genetic risk is what we call a polygenetic profile. So there is a, a, a series of genes, many hundreds, uh, that, that have to align in a certain way for you to have a genetic predisposition. There are some genes, like APOE, um, that convey an increased risk, but they don't necessarily mean you're going to have the disease. It just means that if you have other predisposing genes, which we don't quite know, that then together you have a higher risk. And so there is no single genetic um, assessment or, 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 or test that one can do and say, oh, you're going to get this disease. Uh, that, that's not the case. And that said, there is some value in testing some of those genes because they determine the likelihood of progression or they contribute to identify the risk of ARIA, for example, with lecanemab. So there is some value for the genetic testing, but it's not sufficient to actually establish whether one has the disease or not. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, in terms of where we're going next and, and what we should be looking for on the horizon, that these drugs potentially, in addition to being you know, useful when they're used in the early stages, might also form part of combination therapies down the road when, when we're able to address uh, Alzheimer's from other angles, I guess. So tell me a little more about that. I mean, obviously, we don't know what we don't know, but how do you see this all, all progressing um, and in terms of the next, uh, next drugs to come out? Yeah, so, so the, the reason why I was raising that is because, it is, as we were talking about, this is a very complex disorder. And uh, we know that by the time symptoms begin to be detected by patients and their families, maybe 15, 20 years have gone by since the disease began. And even with the digital cognitive assessments and the proactive screening I was calling for, if we may be able to identify problems maybe 10 years earlier, if that still means that the disease has been going on for 10 years. And so if in that amount of time, the brain is modified, is changed. And, and so it's a very complex sort of pathology that ultimately leads to, to the dementia and, and, and that we want to try to target. The best way to target complex pathologies generally is to not just put all the eggs in one basket, but to target different components of that pathological cascade. 
that has been lessons we've learned from, for example, from cancer or from HIV infections and from other aspects of medicine. And so I think combination therapeutics is worth seriously consider in dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. And I'm not just simply talking about pharmaceuticals, those are very important, but, but as I mentioned briefly earlier, I think lifestyle modifications should be part of that. So I'm thinking of a personalized combination therapeutic program, essentially, that takes the lifestyle modifications seriously and turns them into prescribables along with the right medication combination and it's personalized for each one of us, uh, depending on, on the uh, lifestyle characteristics, behavioral characteristics, but also on genetic markers, as you were asking about. I don't think that's a pie in the sky. I think that's what clinical physicians oftentimes do already. And I think we, we need to empower appropriate clinical trials that explore this in a systematic way so that we have the evidence rather than just the, the guesswork. Let's talk a little more about the lifestyle piece, because I, I think it gets written off um, I, people who say, you know, like no physician ever got sued for saying walk more, eat better, drink more water. Like, obviously, there's more to it than that. And there's and and I assume there's sort of like concrete evidence in this case that, that it makes a difference. But what are we talking about when we talk about these lifestyle interventions? Yeah, so so it's a great question. So so let me offer sort of three comments, if I may. So the first one is that we are past the point of this sort of generic recommendation. The way I often discuss it with, with patients or, or students and colleagues is that you wouldn't tell somebody, take something for your infection. You would tell them what to take, for how many days, when to take it, what we're testing before and after. So you would prescribe it, not offer it as a recommendation. Oftentimes with lifestyle, we recommend it. We tell it to people the same way that my grandmother may, hey, eat better, but that's not useful. What we want to do is tell patients, just like you're asking, what is the evidence that tells me what nutrients I should take, what things I should not take, because they have an impact on the cognition that I want. And, and, uh, and we have that level of knowledge. The second thing is that we have that level of knowledge not only because of retrospective epidemiologic studies, but there are prospective trials, starting with the finger study that has put it to test and taken people with mild cognitive impairment and engaged them in behavioral modification programs and shown that when you do that, the progression of the disease changes prospectively, experimentally with a control group. So we have really compelling evidence and the kind of things that we're talking about. It's a longish list, but it includes diet factors. It includes sleep, uh, appropriate you know, nutrition and, and sleep end up being critical, but also avoiding uh, toxic uh, elements, including medications, uh, uh, appears to be very important. Physical exercise, Cognitive exercises, new challenges to the brain are very important. Social relations and purpose in life, maintaining one, are particularly critical factors that oftentimes get, get overlooked. And, and so the point is that there is a lot to attend to, and that's hard to do. And so the third point is that we need help 
we need coaching, we need support to be able to pursue those things because it's not just one. You, you, you cannot just pick one. It's about living differently, ultimately. But if we're able to do that, the effect of those uh, lifestyle modifications in reducing the risk from progression of MCI to dementia is at least 40%, which put it in context to the pharmaceutical medications and interventions we were talking about means that the effect can be greater than what has been reported for lecanemab and we're so excited about. So um, that's exciting and, and it uh, warrants taking those as, as, as real interventions and therapeutics seriously. Do we know what the mechanism is that allows these sort of lifestyle changes to, I mean, is it zapping amyloids or <laughs> what's going on there? It's a great question. My guess is that there's probably more than one mechanism at work. And, you know, there's components of the mechanisms that have to do with, with better overall health, better cardiac health, and, and therefore better oxygen supply and, and less toxicity to the brain. There is mechanisms, for example, related to sleep that have to do with allowing the brain sleep effect to be more active, which includes cleaning up junk from the brain that gets accumulated through a mechanism we call the lymphatic system, in addition to reorganizing and settling appropriate synaptic weighting and therefore plasticity mechanisms. So my guess is that there is a variety of different mechanisms at work for the different lifestyle modifications we're, we're talking about. And, and the combination of all of them ends up being apparently particularly critical. That's really, really interesting stuff. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, especially fascinating to me, my, my grandmother uh, had Alzheimer's at the end of her life in the, in the aughts. Um, and I, I guess I just wonder, like, how different would uh, treatment today be to what she went through? And, you know, 20, not 20, uh, yeah, about 20 years later, actually. You know, uh, how much would I recognize and, and how much uh, uh, would, would be sort of, yeah, different? <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's a great question, Jonah, and, and I I yeah I hope that I could say we've advanced a lot and it's translating into a different way of practicing and and helping people cope with this disease better. I think there's still a lot that we need to do. To be quite honest, I think there's still many people who who will acknowledge that they don't quite know what to do about it and and I'm talking clinicians and 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 so therefore it leaves their patients a little bit at a loss and I think we need to to educate people better and, and empower patients and their families to to address things appropriately but but the, but there are changes that have been made so for example we we've come to realize increasingly the importance of hearing or the importance of good vision the importance of social relations the fact that over time the caregiver stress can accumulate and if it does it impacts on the patient's well-being and so we need to to start treating the diet of the patient and and her or his caregiver rather than the patient alone. If these are illnesses that affect the whole family unit at the end of the day, and, and that's important to realize too. And we've come to realize that certain other pathologies, including diabetes or hypertension, thyroid functions, have a, a, a very big impact. And so therefore, we need to address the overall 
well-being and health of the patient. We need to be more holistic, ultimately, in, in our approach. And, and I think those realizations are translating into a change in practice, but, but it's, it's oftentimes in specialized centers that that's happening, and there is a shortage of cognitive neurologists, behavioral neurologists, so we need to, to shift that to primary care and, and allow primary care providers with the appropriate tools uh, to be able to help their patients uh, without having to wait for a, an expert uh, consultation. Because this is a very common and widespread disease, right? Extremely so. Um, I think to, to degrees that we don't quite um, fathom, right? So uh, 85-year-olds and older, maybe one in two to one in three has dementia. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. If you look at 65-year-olds and, and, and older, maybe it's one in seven to one in 10. So, and this is of those with a formal diagnosis. If you look at people with, with who are undiagnosed, it may be a, a substantially higher number. And, and, the, and age is the biggest risk factor. And so as our population ages, this is a threat um, that is only going to continue to increase potentially. So it, it's a serious issue to, to tackle head on, as it were. Well, this seems like we've kind of reached a good stopping point, but I definitely want to give you a chance if you had any parting thoughts or anything we haven't talked about yet that you think is, is an important piece of the puzzle here um, to share out of your experience or your expertise. I just wanted to, to maybe offer two thoughts, if I may. One is that, you know, we, if you ask uh, patients, if you ask uh, populations whether they would want to know or not if they had Alzheimer's disease, these are studies that we've done and others have done, overwhelmingly people say they would want to know remarkably even if there was no treatment. We've been talking about the fact that there are treatments, but, but even if there were none, well over 90% of the population says they would want to know. And if you ask why, they say, well, the way I would be able to prepare myself, prepare my family, plan my time ahead, be in control ultimately. So I think that's important for the healthcare systems to remember. People want to know, want to be empowered. The second thing to remember is that in order to do that, we need to be able to test them, assess them, at the point of care without waiting for them to complain because it, it, it takes time to come to the realization for the patients or their families. And so that means we need the right tools to be able to do the testing. And those right tools, I think, need to leverage technology. It's hard to do assessments on a paper and pencil that are very sensitive and can detect very early problems. But how people interact, how people go about doing the things they do can be captured with technology in a very precise way. My phone, your computer knows a lot about how you are doing and I am doing cognitively. And if we can develop digital cognitive assessments that capture that, we can get a snapshot of the patients, of the people, as, a, as an assessment of the brain in a matter of minutes. And that can be done in the workflow of primary care physician and therefore empower people to make the right decisions about their rest of life. So the argument is we need to not wait until dementia develops. Hopefully it does never develop, but we, we need to start assessing brain health and promoting it 
um, in a proactive sort of way. Great. Yeah. And um, obviously that'll extend beyond Alzheimer's and into Parkinson's and, and other neurodegenerative diseases and forms of dementia. Absolutely. I think if we do that appropriately, it would extend to all brain-related disabilities. And brain-related disabilities are the number one cause of disabilities in for humans right now worldwide, um, more so than cancer and cardiovascular diseases together. together. And so therefore, it includes mental health, includes Alzheimer's, depression, Parkinson's. And I think the same model kind of applies and, and we need I think those those checkups of our brain uh, and preventative interventions derived from it. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Alvaro Pasqualeone of Harvard Medical School um, and many other affiliations beyond. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been really, really fascinating and a great overview of, I think, a really exciting and important um, condition in, uh, in pharma right now. Thank you so very much, John. Thank you for having me and hope that... that uh, listeners find it of, of, of interest. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.